The Mike Tomano Happening. Hi, this is PJ Souls. You remember me from Carrie, Halloween, Rock and Roll High School, and Stripes. And you're listening to Mike Tomano. Totally. Master musician, educator, innovator, bass player's bass player, musician's musician, Ron Carter joins us today. Jazz's most recorded bassist, the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Awards in the 2021 Jazz Journalists Association Jazz Awards. Ron Carter has celebrated a lifetime achievement in jazz. He has played on 3,000 recordings, collaborations with everyone from Miles Davis to A Tribe Called Quest. For 20 years, he has been in the music department at the City College of New York. He's now a distinguished professor emeritus. And he's not only one of the most recognizable and revered names in jazz, he is exemplary of the genre itself. His presence has been invaluable on some of the greatest collaborations in music history. His poetic bass lines have been interwoven into timeless jazz as well as rock, pop, soul, and hip-hop. He's a musical hero to me, and I'm honored to have him join us. Ron Carter is not only one of the most recognizable and revered names in jazz music, he's the definition of the genre itself. His presence has been invaluable on some of the greatest collaborations in music history, as well as uh, being responsible for some of the most haunting, beautiful compositions I've ever heard. His poetic bass lines have been involved in timeless jazz as well as rock, pop, soul, and hip-hop. He's a musician's musician. He's the most recorded jazz bassist. Credited, Ron, is this correct? 3,000 recordings? It's probably 2,700. The book said at 250, in the year 2015, when they gave me the day the Guinness Book of Records announced that uh, announcement, it was 2,221, but I've been pretty busy the past six years, so it's probably closer to 2,500. Adding to that number every day. Well, you're a musical hero to me, and thank you so much for for joining us. Welcome to the program, Maestro. Um, When I was preparing for your visit, you know, you, you don't make it easy for an interviewer because I found myself going through my record collection, and if I were to sit here and talk about my favorite Ron Carter performances and records, we could be here for a couple of weeks, and I know you're going on tour, so I'm going to touch well, on a few. Okay, I'm, I'm sitting down in my chair, so I'm ready for you. <laughs> Ron, I'd like to start at your beginnings. I want to give people kind of a background. You were born outside of Detroit, correct? Yeah, Ferndale's a block away. It's kind of matters. The, 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 the town line is where this line is, and on six feet is this Ferndale and the other side is Detroit. So it's a block called a block away from Detroit, yes. Yeah. And you know, 1937. 1937, and, and Detroit not only known for having its own sound when it comes to rock and roll, and obviously its own uh, innovations in the world of Motown, but in his later life, I became friends with Yusuf Latif, and we oh, wow. talked about the diversity of jazz and the adventurous jazz that was being made uh, even early on in Detroit. Yeah, and you had some 
famous piano players, Hugh Lawson, of course, Tommy Flanagan, you had Hank Jones, you had Barry Harris, you had uh, Alice Coltrane, you had Terry Pollard. I mean, the piano players came out of Detroit. Kirk Lysey, they were incredible. They had a different sound. All of them out of the Bud Powell School, but they all went somewhere else with it. So Detroit was turning out great cars and even <laughs> better piano players. Right. And, and there was something about Detroit. It's, it's, I think they call it Detroit muscle, where you take something, because even the, the garage bands, they were taking Rolling Stones and Kink songs, but they were giving them an extra oomph. The same thing was happening with jazz. They were seeing what was out there and saying, hey, let's give it our own stamp. Well, I think no one told me it wasn't possible, so it must, must have been possible, you know? Right. Well, you went to the Eastman School of Music early on. So how did music enter your life? Did you come from a musical family? Well, I'm, I'm sure that, that there was some uh, the singers are available and we had interest. But the teacher, when I was about 10, 11, 12, I guess, the teacher came into our room one day with the, and, and she had on this desk in front of her, or a table actually, a, a bunch of instruments. And she said that she was going to start a string orchestra in the school where we were. Like went to the eighth grade, probably a fifth grade at that time. She said, no, I want your children to pick an instrument and we're going to pick that instrument that you're going to have and make some music with this orchestra. So we walked up to the table and we took we thought it was fun for us to play, not knowing what an orchestra was in terms of what she had in mind, and the cello was my choice. The cello was your choice, and and when did you make the move to a double bass? Well, when I went to Cash Tech, uh, 52 to 55, my last year, that they were having uh, the orchestra or select members of the uh, cut down orchestra, smaller group of go to play these uh, music festivals behind uh, at conventions and those kind of uh, PTA meetings. And I thought that as a cellist, I was a, I was able to I was good enough to go, and I never got the invitation. But I noticed that the graduate that the the January graduation of '55, the bass player was graduating. I decided, well, if they need a bass player and there's only one that has that happens to be me, then that was mine. So Excellent. I talked to, my, talked to my parents. We sold the cello. I got another bass teacher, and I took up the bass in January 1955, approximately. Wow. And then you got your master's degree from the Manhattan School of Music. So you were, you were right in it. I mean, this was, this was your life. Yes. I've decided this is what I'm going to do, and let's try to make it work. Looking at some of your earliest jobs, um, I'm going to bring some names up. Throughout this interview, I'm just going to throw names at you and get some impressions okay. from you. Uh, drummer Chico Hamilton and Cannonball Adderley. You played with them at an early age. Tell us about those experiences. Well, Chico at the time had Eric Dolphy in the band, uh, saxophone and bass clarinet, Dennis Buttermere, guitar, Nat Dirchman, cello. At the time I joined the band, Wyatt Ruther, Bill Ruther was a bass player. Well, he decided to, when the band got back to New York, he decided to return to Seattle, his hometown, and Chico asked me who wanted to hire me for uh, as a cello player, would I, would I play the bass book? So I went down to Berlin and the book and said, okay, well, the job is yours and we're leaving the day after tomorrow. So mm. that was the Chico Hamilton band. When I got to Manhattan, I was a student of 1960 to June of 61 and uh, Cannonball was taking the band to Europe with Sam Jones, uh, Lou Hayes, Nat Adler, of course, and I think Victor uh, Feldman. And at some point during the night, Sam Jones played one song on, uh, on a cello-sized bass. 
and they wanted a bass player to play Van Sam. So it's cannibalized me when I go for this tour, like uh, eight concerts in, in two weeks or so. And I said, yeah, so that was my first time to Europe, uh, spring of 1961 with Cannon and that band. We came back to New York and they made a record at Riverside for Orange Keep Bills sometime in uh, July of 61. So that was my first date for Orange Keep Bills or so. Wow. So now how old were you when you played Ron with uh, Thelonious Monk? And was that quite an adjustment? Well, I had come to New York and I had met Sam Jones when I was working at, at a backup van in Rochester, New York, at a place called the Ridgecrest Inn, which was like a five miles from Rochester from the Eastern School of Music grounds. And uh, bass players told me I should come to New York, and if I did, because New York would need a good bass player, so they thought I could kind of fill that bill. I get to New York, and I'm making making the rounds, and making gigs wherever I could, and I get a call from Sam Jones, said that he's got the flu. Mm. And he's got a gig with Sonia's Monk for the next 10 days, but the first gig is at a concert in New York across from a place called the Doomsday Gate. He said, if I was available, I should make that gig for him. I said, well, I'm available, and I'll make the gig for you. So I did okay. it one night in New York at the, at the concert, and then went to Philadelphia, a place called the uh, Showplace, which came with Sonia's uh, Monk, Charlie Ross, and Spex Wright. Uh, my first week with Sonia's Monk. It was a great week. Yeah, I bet. So this was so this was a whirlwind of activity for you. And you, you talked about meeting Eric Dolphy in um, Chico Hamilton's band. But then Eric, you know, he went out and did some stuff that was from outer space. Uh, you played on his Out There album. So from the time you were playing with him in Chico's band, which is relatively straightforward, and then you, you get to this setting for Out There, uh, what was the mindset there? Uh, Eric was a band leader. Yeah. We talked about making records before, you know, and and uh, I, I knew his first record was out there with uh, Roy Haynes and those and that Freddie Hubbard. It's a really great record that started the whole new sound of that music by quart, a quartet, a quintet. He said, he's going to do this record uh, whenever it was, and he wanted to play a cello on I said, well, Eric, give me the music. I said, if I can handle it. So he sent me the music, and I sat down when we have rehearsed for a couple of days. I said, Eric, I can do this. So... He called me for the date, and we did this date out of Billy Van Gelders with uh, Charlie Persip and Mel Waldron. And, uh, and uh, George Vivier played bass. I played cello for the whole day. I had a great time. Yeah. And so you have guys like Dolphy doing stuff uh, with smaller bands and stretching it out. And then you get with Don Ellis, who took uh, you know the setting of the big band and took it out there as well. Well, you know, unfortunately, people don't know about that far back. They only they know it miles. This is okay in those later records, but I was part of the early avant-garde crew in New mm-hmm. York. Uh, Don Ellis, Jackie Byard, who was pretty far out. Yes. Eric's sound was not what they were used to at the time. It was, it was always Bird and Sonny Stitt, that whole concept, which is a, a valuable and valid part of the saxophone history. And Eric was doing something harmonically different. You know, I was playing with those guys. So my, my familiarity with the non school was part of my upbringing as I got to New York. Right. You were part of the avant-garde. And so jazz, here it is in the 60s, expanding far beyond uh, straight ahead or bop. And and it seemed like, and it still does, and and people like you have continued that, um, that the genre of jazz, and we're going to get into that a little bit later on, it was and is limitless. And, And you guys knew that early on. Well, I think we just played music that we heard was going to work. Mm-hmm. I think we hadn't thought about naming it anything except having a great time with some very special people. Right, right. You know, I would describe the bass to my students. I, I teach drums, and I and I often tell them that the bass 
is in in a simplistic term the glue between melody and rhythm would you agree because you've definitely uh you know proven that the, i think the bass player for me he's a guy who's calling the shots right my, my my thought is that whoever the band leader is he or she they're clearly the band leader but the bass player is actually leading the band. Mm-hmm. Every note he plays covers four or five things that the band needs, the harmony, the, where, where, where's the beat, what's the right chord we're on, what's the form of the tune, what's the groove. Each note he plays covers these specific elements that the band needs to function. And he's the only guy who controls that. Yeah. You or she. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, you know, and, and your history at Miles Davis is where most people begin. But as we've already pointed out, you had already had a diverse uh, education and, uh, you know, performance with many different uh, players. But now when you were a member of his famous quintet, uh, what was Miles like as a leader? He trusted our judgment. He assembled a bunch of guys, in this case, Wayne or George, Herbie and Tony, uh, me, who he thought could make some music. I'm sure he didn't have a, a name for it. And I'm sure he was hearing other things that the quintet with Wynn Kelly or, for, or, or Paul Chambers, Jimmy Cobb, Philly Joe Jones. I'm sure he had a sound that they gave, they, they got a sound with his tutelage. Right. He understood that this new bunch of guys would be a different kind of sound he wanted but he didn't know quite how to describe it and at the time no one had a name for it I'm not sure they got a good name for it now but he trusted our input and I asked he asked for questions on what we could do and what we thought about it and was it valuable was it valid and he was very curious as to how we felt about it we were just weren't waiting for him to give us the stick or tell us what, the, what kind of uniform to wear he was interested in having us help him make a decision on what the band was going musically yeah so then do you come into a setting like that and in all these all these recordings early on, is there, are there just lead sheets? Are there are there chord progressions? Is there is there a melody line? How do how do you record stuff like that? Well, they all had lead sheets. The first uh, we we never rehearsed any of those record dates. We just kind of meet at the date at a certain time, and whoever's tune it was, Wayne's or Herbie's or Tony's or whatever Miles had sketches of, we pass them out and make sure that they were written correctly, that they agreed on what we're looking at the same piece, the same measure marking, the same changes. And we'd go from there. We'd take turns. We'd press your turn, whoever it is, and then next is my turn, and next tune is Tony's tune, and next is Herbie's tune, and we just got the library finished at that session. Yeah. I want to diverge for a moment and talk about your role as an educator. You said in a recent interview that, uh, quote, I discover new things in any song all the time, which I found so, it just punched me in the head. I'm like, yes, I'm going to use that for my students. Can you expound upon that? Well, you know, once you understand the form of the song, and once you really know the changes, and that you can sit down and write out a lead sheet of someone what the chords of this particular tune are, and you have a bunch of guys with you who are as curious about harmony alterations and the rhythms as you are, it's easy to keep an open mind and discover new ideas for the song. To make all that work, you need those elements. You need to understand the form of the tune. You need to really know the changes. Mm-hmm. You need an environment that encourages that kind of outside the envelope ensemble playing. And, and I've been fortunate enough to be a part of those kinds of groups throughout my career. Yes. Yeah. You tell the story a different, you know, you add a little something to the story every time. <laughs> That's kind of like. Absolutely. Yeah. So as a player, you know, you've worked in such a wide spectrum of music imaginable. Roberta Flack to Alice Coltrane and uh, in A Tribe Called Quest. 
So when you're preparing, Ron, to enter the studio with an artist or group, and, and maybe there's someone that you're relatively new to, how do you prepare? Well, I tell my students uh, uh, to do the, to do three things. First of all, be to the gig an hour early to get set up mm-hmm. and see the music. Uh, second, like I asked them to leave their ego at home and bring an extra set of ears to the recording session. Because you'll need that to make it work. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, and, and so now when you're in a studio and maybe you haven't heard the music that much yet, I know Steve Gadd says he'll sit down with a cup of coffee, listen to the song maybe 10 or 20 times, and then let's do it. Is it similar for you? Well, my patience is not so long. I kind of trust my instincts a little faster because I'm playing all that stuff that I told you each note must do for the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, they give us pass our lead sheets and uh, give us tempo, and we try to try to we, we drop right in as a bass player. No one's going to play my part but me. Right. You know. So I'm kind of men making my part unless you got a specific bass chart. Yeah. Play from my jelly, make my part from the lead sheet, but just has a melody and changes on it. I'm on my own. Uh, Given that general recording's presence, uh, I kind of have to trust my instinct and what I hear to make the song with no help of a bass part do what I think the melody requires and I hope the leader trusts my judgment with my choice of notes. Right. One of the things that I would uh, use to describe your compositional endeavors, um, as opposed to, to a lot of players, is mood is so prevalent in everything that you do. And can you uh, kind of tell us about how that um, plays into not only your writing a song, but also in playing a song and choosing notes? Well, you know, I try to have a person in mind or a sound, and I wrote that song, Mild with, Mild Mood with the, the Miles Band, and at the time we were playing a lot of really fast tunes, man, a lot of difficult changes, and I said, man, I had, had enough. Let's try something that's a little less uh, intellectually commanding something that we can get our teeth into without so much research that is right here in front of us so I wrote a song that didn't have a lot of complex changes the form is kind of unusual as the forms were developing at that time and, and the, the bass and the, the, the drum parts were kind of uh, basic but the harmony that I was able to get Wayne and, and Herbie and Miles to play on was a little, a little more different than the, the standard battle at that time and, and those guys understood what I was aiming for and it made it fun to hear my thoughts realized by those three other guys yeah yeah so i'm gonna bounce around a bit ron and you know you were a staple player for the cti label in in the 70s and 80s and those records are so important to me so many of them there's so many i mean (laughs) that's what's so difficult about interviewing you you've done so much so again maybe you come out to the house we spend a week and we'll do a documentary but (laughs) (laughs) i'll just go through my record collection what about this one what about this one but for those yeah right (laughs) so for those not familiar let's go back and talk about that particular label and its output and kind of its approach to letting artists be artists. Okay, well, give me a specific question and I can help you with the answer. Okay, for CTI, so I want to touch on some of the albums. And, and so when you recorded okay. for CTI, um, yep. we'll do a little word association then. I'll mention a recording okay. and maybe you can give me what comes to mind. First of all, the okay. double whammy for me, 1973, Blues Farm and All Blue, your solo albums. Tell us about uh, what you can recollect of those recordings. Okay, well, the Blues Farm, the title is well, I would, at the time I was going to, I had a, published a book 
uh, building baselines in 1964 or so, and uh, I'd have to go to the post office to pick up the orders from people who ordered the book. And while I was there, a lot of the postmen who were working down the counter were jazz fans, they knew about music and miles and stuff like that, and they recognized me from picking up these orders for the books. And, and uh, three or four of those guys, man, were, I, went, I went to their local gigs in Harlem, they were wonderful saxophone players or drummers, you know. Mm-hmm. And I called that place the Blues Farm, because all the guys in there who really played good, but they were being farmed out to work at the post office. Oh. So the title of the record is strictly Blues Farm, it's for those guys and gals who were uh, unable to do the jazz thing they wanted to do and got a stable job at that time working for the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, it's just dedicated to those people. They, 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 we became very close to talking about music and, and, and uh, uh, options and, and the scene. There's a lot of jazz on the radio at that time. There were a lot of jazz clubs that they would frequent during their off days and mm. come out here to guys play. And they would maintain contact with the community despite working in something completely different the post office. Right. This is dedicated to my memory and my love for those people who could only go as far as their love for the music, but they found a way to be productive in society at the post office. Right. And what was the other record? All Blue is another, you know, because you you put those both out in 73. It was a big year for you. Yeah, I kind of played that record a couple of, played that song a couple of times. (laughs) I think maybe, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think I wanted to be in charge of what happened to it. And I thought that, uh, uh, I had fun making that record. We went out to Rudy Van Gelder's, and again, there was no rehearsal for the record. I had the music printed out. I had the parts written out, all that stuff. They knew what I wanted, and, and uh, those guys, they were, they were ready to meet the challenge that I thought my music would present it to them. And we left the studio feeling that we got all we could get out of it in five hours. We got all we can get out of this song. Mm. Lovely. Next case. You know, um, when you talked about the people at the post office, you know, and people who are, you know, gigging when they can. And yeah. I think uh, that's paramount to what I tell my students. Because I, I teach a lot of young kids who are aspiring drummers. And some of them, their goal is to be the lead or, or to play the kit in the uh, ensemble at school. And others want to become rock stars. And, and I tell them the most important thing for any artist is to fall in love with the work. Because whatever successes you gain financially or in recognition, the most important is how much you can grow as a musician and how much pleasure you get out of the work. And I think the the people at the post office, they understood that. Absolutely. They want to be productive citizens. Yeah. And, and uh, they had so much love for the music. They played it whenever they could. They just, it wasn't their time to get the kind of exposure they needed or they may have come along when there were already some major saxophone players who took up all the air, you know. There are reasons for everyone not being able to be, uh, I hate this word, famous, but mm-hmm. well-known and have gigs all the time, you know. Yeah. Uh, but there's other ways to be involved in music. Some guys are composers. Some guys are copyists. At the time, there was a big thing being copyists. Uh, some guys were engineers. Some guys wrote books. I mean, there's always a way to be involved in the music without being a physical player to be successful and be happy. Right. Another record from the CTI label, I was in Traverse City. This was probably within the last decade, and I was at this great record store, and I came across an album that I wasn't familiar with, Milt Jackson's Sunflower album, and I see this line. Lineup. I see Freddie Hubbard on there, Billy Cobham, Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, and I'm like, this is going to burn. 
And it does, but in in a in a surprising fashion, it's a rather mellow setting, and it's just a beautiful, almost a classical vibe to that playing in those compositions. Do you remember the Sunflower album? Absolutely. That was with the ostrich on the cover, really bright yellow cover. Yes. That was one of the one of the uh, best covers of the year, I think, because it was such a startling view for presentation of a jazz record. On that record that's used at schools now to analyze what I do, there's a record tune called SKJ, mm. the blues written by Milt Jackson. And on the, on the second, on the first, the end of Fred Hubbard's first chorus on that song, I play a bass line that goes up chromatically for the whole 12 bars and ends up on the downbeat of the 13th bar, which is the top of the second chorus, on the root. And that's, that's a line that I just came up with for that particular, for that particular moment. And if you listen to Herbie playing piano, you hear him use the same kind of concept during his solo. Mm. So it's, a, it's a, a very good record to analyze how jazz is a communicative and a group endeavor. Yeah. Uh, Sunflower. It's a nice record, by the way. Yeah, beautiful record. You know, you also did a string of... Um, an up-and-coming artist during the CTI days, George Benson, who would go on to great pop uh, success. But uh, those records are just fantastic as well. What was it like working with George? Well, you know, I, I regret that people who know him as a, a great singer, that they're correct. If they could hear him as a, being a, a great guitar player, mm-hmm. man, that'd be a whole other avenue of audience for George. Not that he needs it. But boy, he's did you hear how, fanta- how, how phenomenal this guy is playing the guitar. Mm-hmm. And George Benson, man, he, he owns the guitar. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I, I, I so much in love with how he plays the instrument and what he does with it. One of my favorite records is not on CTI, it's called Ghibli Gravy. Mm-hmm. We do a Billy's Bounce with Herbie Hancock, I think uh, Billy Cobham and me, and the boy George Benson's solo on that, on that track is just otherworldly. Mm-hmm. And I recommend any guitar players who sing to hear that record. All right. Well, back to Ron Carter, composers. So many beautiful pieces that you've written are in so many different, uh, diverse styles. So, what what is the creative process for you when you sit down? You're going to write a song. Does it? Are you driving? To, you know, down the road, and, and a melody gets in your head, or are you are you playing bass and something comes out? And walk us through the process there. Well, it depends on where I am. If any projects in, in place. Uh, I, I just, uh, unfortunately, uh, Mike, I just can't sit down and write a great idea from nowhere. I need to have a purpose. I need to have an aim. I need to have a, a person or a group that requires my writing for a project. Uh, once I have a, a goal, an aim, or an intent of the results of my work, is I sit down and find a melody on the bass. I, I don't play a very great piano, but I can kind of mumble through it. Get a melody. With this melody, trying to find out what form it is and what kind of changes make this melody do something that I think would be worthwhile for having have someone else someone else play. Mm-hmm. And once I get that kind of concept of me, I sit down and figure out what's a good tempo for this melody and who uh, who do I have in mind? If it's if George Benson or Hank Crawford or whoever I'm working for, you know, Grover. Uh, what kind of what kind of what, what's that tempo? What, what song? Do they, what's their favorite set of changes? And what's their favorite tempo? Can I find something that, that's mine, of my song, that covers what I think is their sweet spot, so to speak? And uh, I'm off to the races. Okay. Yeah, that that's a great insight because when you're writing a song, you're kind of thinking of play. It's like, kind of like a director or, or a screenwriter who can see the actors that are playing in this particular film. So when you're writing a when you're writing a composition for someone else 
you kind of go through the same uh, process, I'm guessing, kind of looking at it, how, how they sound and maybe what their yes. strengths are? Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and sports is called wheelhouse, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. What's in, their, <laughs> what's in their wheelhouse indeed. So I want to talk about some of my favorite tunes again. I, again, okay. when you come out here for the weekend, we'll, uh, we'll go through your whole selections. But Sheila's song, the first time I heard it, uh, heard it I, had to, I had to just stop what I was doing and listen to it a few times. One of the most haunting melodies, and it's, it's melancholy, but it's uplifting at the exact same time. And I just, uh, if you can expound on that. Well, at the time, I just put together an octet, a nonet, I guess, with uh, right. four cellos, piano, two basses, drums, and percussion. And one of my friends who was a dancer had just uh, left the concert, had just passed away. And I, and I thought that, that it deserved uh, being memorialized in music. And, and uh, she's a, a nice lady, and she got cancer, you know, and uh, she just passed away. Mm. But she was interesting dancing. She was interested in dancing with rhythms and, and movement, you know. She was very attractive to watch her move in time, you know. And I yeah. thought that I'd like to have her in our in our the band's representing the band's library to have a song written just for her. Gorgeous. And the song that she a song. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful tribute. Um, going back Thank to you. your Blues Farm album, um, Two Beat is a song that uh, is made for a, a Sunday morning cruise, uh, either in the country or the city. And so, so now when you're composing a tune, do you ever have visuals in mind like that? Well, you know, if I'm going to be responsible for the music that the bass player plays, I wanted to be in his wheelhouse. Right. And, and uh, Jimmy Heath calls that stuff the businessman's mount, those kind of temples. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I thought that since I'm going to play this record, I'm going to be responsible for its entirety. What are my, what are my, some, what are some of my favorite temples? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that temple, that piece, it's just kind of a nice, comfortable zone. You know, you can kind of watch the birds. You can kind of you know, have, your, have your coffee and donut on the front steps of a, a country house. You know, something that's unobtrusive, but very calming and relaxing. And you can kind of enjoy the coffee a little bit longer. You know, it gets cold, you don't really care because you're outside in the sun. And yeah. it's kind of that kind of zone, you know? Yeah. And, you know, what I would play for a student um, to show them how the drummer and the bass player relate to each other is uh, Patchouli from your Peg Leg album. Uh, You've got this bass that is so slinky behind this tight rhythm section. It's really sublime playing. Well, I was at the time I was... uh... And I was, I was analyzing Brazilian songs and I didn't quite know how they worked so well for me. What what about the harmony? What about the keys? What about the changes that they played? And, and so I just sat down one evening and just went to a, a Brazilian library of stuff I had recorded to find what do they what 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 do these melodies have in common that I like? Mm. And is it possible for me to kinda understand that well enough to write a song kinda along those lines? And the patchouli is kind of a, a, a blues, Brazilian blues, but it's got some nice chords and some nice harmonies. And I think Jay Berlin had played some nice voicings that I wouldn't, I didn't know how to do on piano, but he knew how to do on guitar. It made the piece work. Yeah, Ron, you know, speaking of Brazilian music, I mean, it obviously really resonates with you. The uh, uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim album, um, Stoneflower. I mean, that's pure magic. Yeah. And so that, what is it about the Brazilian uh, music that, that resonates with you so well? 
two things. Uh, like, uh, the temples are always comfortable. They're never hurried. They're never real fast. Mm. You know? And second, the song forms are interesting to me. There's some 16-bar phrase or a 12-bar a, a phrase with a 3-4 bar or 5-4 bar, somewhere in those 12 bars. Those kind of quirks interest me. And I, find a, if I can find a bass line that flows through those things uh, evenly and consistently when writing no choices, it kind of makes the blues, makes, makes the Brazilian song have another kind of... Uh, another spice in the stew yeah you know being a drummer i want to talk about uh i want to make a little self-indulgence here there's some drummers that you've worked with that have changed my life and i want to get your insight into their playing okay and if okay. someone were to ask you who would they you know why would i pick billy cobham to play on my album what do you what, talk to talk to us about billy cobham you played so much with him well billy reads everything he's a very very great reader if you write a drum part out you will hear what you wrote Secondly, Billy has a nice sense of, uh, uh, of weight of the drums, mm. you know. Uh, they don't sound, I don't mean loud, like just heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, 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 his sound is flexible enough that you hear every note he plays on the drums, which allows me the space not to worry about my notes getting covered by the drums being heavy sounding. You know? Right, he, but but the presence is felt. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and the great Tony Williams. Tony could play any kind of rhythm he could hear, and the fun of playing with Tony was trying to see, trying to get him to that rhythm before he finished it. And he <laughs> he loved that. Yeah. One of the things he always asked me to do was write the changes to a certain song he was working on, or heard uh, the band playing, because he wanted to know how the song worked. He wanted to know what the song form was. He wanted to know. But my loan, how, how my notes indicated where I thought we should be in the tune. And mm. he's a very, very musical drummer outside of playing the drums. Yes, and he, and he really came into his own as a composer as well. You know, and yeah, probably from he's a very your, good writer, man. Yeah. yeah, he's a very, very good writer. And Jack Dejanet, who uh, plays by his own rules in a lot of ways. Jack has a wonderful recorded drum sound. He assembles sound nice and crisp. He has a really bright uh, snare drum that I like to have so it doesn't get in the way of my range of the instrument. Uh, he has a nice uh, uh, bass drum. He knows how to uh, feather the bass drum. You know that phrase, feather the bass drum? Yes, yes. He, he knows how to do that. So it helps the bass note sound even more full without me having to play harder or play the, just bang the bass, so to speak. You know, And I enjoy playing with him. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely learned that from him. He's got a very flowing uh, bass drum feel too. It's not. It's not always yeah. exact. It, it kind of is almost a melodic approach to the bass drum itself. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's interesting to hear him play as well as play with it. Yeah, he's amazing. And uh, you played with Steve Gadd many times. Steve is a great rhythm player. Yeah. We did a, one of my favorite records with him is with Chet Baker. Uh, uh, Paul Desmond, I think Roland Hanna. Mm. Uh, uh, we did uh, Autumn Leaves. That's what I'm on YouTube now. And boy, yes. Steve, Steve is right in that zone where the beat is clear. He's articulate with where the beat, where the beat belongs. He's not getting away with the bass player with his rhythms. It's a, it's a pleasure to listen to that record after all these years. Yeah. So if I'm in a record store and I'm picking up uh, records that I haven't seen before or heard before and I see Ron Carter's name, I'll definitely grab it. And there's a few musicians like that, one of them being Grady Tate. Can you talk about Grady? 
Grady is a phenomenal studio drummer. He's played with everybody, anytime, all the time. Yeah. He also turned out to be a wonderful singer. He said he's had enough playing drums. He's going to sing for a while. So he <laughs> put the drums down, man, and started singing. And he started singing really well. He made, I made three or four records with him as a singer. Yes. He's a really great, he's got great diction. He understands intonation, being the drummer all these years. And, and boy, it's a pleasure to play with him when he was singing, too. You, you know, when you, when you were talking about George Benson earlier and how just astonishing his playing is um you also worked with west montgomery early in his career i mean he was just getting his name starting uh to spread there and you had mentioned in an interview that i i don't know if i read it or i saw it on youtube or something that that west was a bit shy and he was maybe a little unsure of his role in music well i think he was he was more shy about telling us what he's to give her what he thought he needed. Okay. You know, and I, I think maybe he couldn't couldn't define what was not okay with him. He just didn't. It just wasn't there what he would be comfortable doing. And because he didn't know how to tell us it without holding the band in such high esteem, right? He didn't want to feel like he was putting us down. You know, and we were saying, "Well, what is it? What does it take to make this work?" You know. And and uh, after a while, he became comfortable not with just expressing his opinion. But understand that these guys were going to help him sound good once they understood what they thought that he needed to make him sound even better. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. He's a really a, a wonderful player, obvious, but really a nice, a nice, nice man who understood camaraderie. Yeah. Well, now when a band or an artist is seeking out your input, or you know, when they want you to play on their album, uh, how do you choose whether or not to take a gig? Uh, other than available or not uh, do they have any music uh, do they have a concept uh, what kind of budget do they have and how many sessions is it going to take to get the project finished yeah yeah exactly and so what about when you're taking on students what do, what do you because every student is different yeah I asked them to send me some kind of uh, visual some kind of YouTube or MP3 file so I can hear what they think hear, hear what they do and uh, I asked them now, what do they think they had most help in? And not that I uh, see if I can feel if I can feel that note, feel that that space in their heads, and then yeah. uh, I make sure they don't call me Ron. <laughs> well, I call you Maestro, so that's that's you know yeah. you you see me on Facebook yeah. every time you comment. I'm like, this is my this is my yeah, we, guy. We, yeah, we can deal with that, but not, <laughs> don't call me. Don't get personal. No, you, we're not there yet. You're yeah. Mr. Carter, right? Yes, or yeah. Maestro. Maestro, Maestro's great. So, so, and all, I, I call them Mr. and Mrs. too. I, I want to go and get this teacher-student relationship to be good. Yes, yeah, you want to keep and, it somewhat it starts, formal. Yeah, yeah, and, and it starts with understanding who's who and what's what, so that we can all learn from this process of student-teacher. I'm learning each time I teach them, and I hope that they leave my house or my studio. Gee, I learned this today. Right, teachers look for that. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, you know, and that's the thing I think that's important to emphasize that being so well known, some people may seek you out just because they have a, kind of a, a desire to meet you or to, to hang with you. And I think that could get in the way of actually uh, the learning process. If they, well, I try to feel that, yeah, I try to feel that out. You know, you, 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 you got to get the guys who just want to have coffee with you, you know, and, and I, I will do that in a much more social setting than a lesson. That's, that's yeah. A lesson is not a social event. Right. It's a class. Yes. Right? Yeah. It's a learning situation. And that's an, they have to understand that that's what I'm looking for. And if they are looking for that, then we don't, we don't get together at all. And that's probably best for everybody. 
Yeah. You know, great jazz players obviously are great improvisers. Uh, and when I, when I think of improvisation as a technique, um, is it a mastery of uh, formal technique or is it a mastery of imagination or is it a marriage of both? All of the above. Yeah. Yeah, because that's kind of what I, you, you can't really break the rules until you learn them. And I think you've been a big proponent of that. Uh, you've learned Absolutely. the rules early on. Absolutely. And yes. br- breaking the rules doesn't mean dismissing them. It means it, it means expanding on them. Can you talk about Absolutely. that a little bit? Well, you know, rules are made to be broken. And, and uh, you know, I like to think of my students needing a template or a, a basement, a base. Right. On how to order best understand what it takes to make a looking baseline work, for example. Yeah. You know, I think you don't work on uh, perspiration or enthusiasm or the feeling there's a certain level of concept that you need to have before the baseline can function on its own. Yeah. I spend a great deal of time trying to have them understand that for as difficult as the base is to understand what makes lines work, makes it a little less complicated and even much more enjoyable. The mm. results. And what would be some of those uh, those steps to making a good bass line? So I'm listening to a song, maybe some rings in a demo, and it's just an acoustic guitar. Let's talk about a pop song. So what would you listen to? What would you key into first? Is he playing a tune? Is he playing the form of the tune? Where is he playing it on the bass? Uh, what kind of sound does he or she have? And those four or five things are enough to give me a head start on whether I can think I can help him despite what he thinks he needs to know. And where you're at, yeah. Boy, it's like going to school with you, Ren. First of all, thank you. I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep asking a few more questions, but what this is a highlight okay. of my career, and I, I so appreciate it. Um, it's been a long time coming, and uh, your music has enriched my life. And so, when we were kicking off the podcast, in addition to the radio show, I was thinking, "Hey, Ron Carter," and I know you're so busy. I want to go back to the Roberta Flack first take album, which opens okay. with some of these beautiful booming bass notes on uh, compared to what the uh, leadoff track now Roberta moved into a more pop oriented style after that album but can you bring it bring us back to that recording because it's kind of stark and it kind of lives in its own world in her uh, in her catalog well she was had come to she had was working with a band in Washington DC at, at the club in Washington and Joel Dorn through recommendations from other musicians recommended to talk to to come to New York to sign with Atlantic and making a record. Well, they came to New York to make a record and after the first couple of dates, I guess, the record was not successful. The making of the record mm-hmm. was a, really a process. And I think that they were, the band was not used to making records and they decided that since she's here and she just signed with us label, can we call guys who can come in and help her make this record? At least it will be, the contract will be finished for this arrangement that we have to sign it for to the label. So they called me and Grady Tate and Bucky Pitts, me and Grady Tate, me and uh, Ray Lucas, mm-hmm. a wonderful drummer, man, and, and Bucky Pizzarelli. And Roberta played all the arrangements because they were hers from her time in Washington. We just had to play the parts she gave us and uh, make it work. And uh, that record put her on the map and it also put us on the map because we had a chance to really explore our own musicianship and be able to really let her lead us to a direction that we would not probably get to on our own. Right. Um, yeah. She's a wonderful piano player, man. She has a real sense of form and, and concept and voicings that she's found that makes her sound great. Yeah. Well, our job is 
less complicated because she knows what she wants. Our job is to find it as quickly as we can to complement and supplement her view of what's necessary to make her be complete. And uh, that record is a good, a, good, a good way to look at a studio band, a group that comes in the studio that becomes a studio band after one or two takes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's a commanding presence. There's no doubt about it. Having seen her play. Yeah. Yeah. In the late eighties, you know, you released uh, all alone, which is just that it's, it's you playing all alone with your bass and yet for a, for a singular instrument album, it not only expands the bass for a listener, but it covers both rhythm, melody and composition. I think that's essential for any musician to listen to no matter what instrument they play, because a lot of times you'll have, uh, instrument spotlight albums that are just shredding and this is not the case with this album this is poetry well the, the bass sounded good that day and I say that to my students because on certain days man the bass just kind of takes over <laughs> this is, it's a nice place to be when that happens believe yeah. me and this is one of those days where the bass just kind of said look look where did you play I'm going to respond okay to that Beautiful. And, uh, it was a good day you know, it was all done within three or four hours I, had, I went in with a plan I had for eight tunes in my mind I'd written out a little sketches for each song I had a tempo in my mind I wasn't going in there looking for a concept I wasn't going in there jamming with myself and waiting for the light bulb to go on I went in there prepared to make a record that covered the areas of the bass that interested me mm. I thought I was pretty good at that interest me to see how does this guy think playing by himself Right. and the, the, the result was all alone yeah yeah. So what's a day what day off? When you're not playing music, when you're not heading out to a gig, you're not going to a recording studio, what what's a day in the life of uh Ron Carter like? Well it's all changed now because we didn't work for two, work for two years or right. almost two years, you know. What I spend my time doing during this time is uh working on some books for my fledging uh publication library of bass stuff. And uh, some of my students who I took during this period of time would recommend records for me to hear that I'm on that I had forgotten about. So I've been doing uh, forced research on my career because these guys, students say, hey, Mr. Carter, how about this record? Do you know this record? Who played drums on this record? Doesn't stay on the label. So that kind of stuff I did. I've been doing some forced research and remembering of stuff that I did. That began to go back to reading. I love to read. I've been going to go back to my candle and sit down in front of my front of the window with some sunshine and my coffee nearby and reading some novels again. Yeah. 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 That, I'm always interested in because you're so busy and I know you're heading out after we get done uh, talking today, aren't you? Well, we headed toward the Baltimore for four days. I haven't been there in, in of course, three years now since the pandemic. Yeah. I look forward to, uh, to have a great chef. Uh, Todd Larkin is the management owner of the uh, club, and I'm glad to see people are still maintaining their interest in that club because it's a great room, and Baltimore was a nice jazz town for all these years. I'm looking forward to seeing him, having great food, and playing some wonderful music. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you should... February 9th, uh, August 19th, August 19th to August 22. Well, I have to see when you come through the Chicago area. I can't wait. Yeah, man. I hope those dates add up quickly. Uh, we're we're more than ready to get back to see some live music. Um, you, you shared your stage with Pat Metheny a uh, number of times. Another musician who, like you, continues to explore the boundaries of music and, uh, and I guess, quotes uh, around this, what is jazz? Do you, you find a kindred spirit with Pat? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Pat has a great, you know, he's, for all the sounds he makes on the instruments, he has a tremendous, tremendous skill. 
you know, we did some duo concerts together, and I was mm-hmm. just amazed at how quickly he found those notes he was finding. And that's kind of <laughs> skill level I aim for for the bass, at playing the bass horizontally rather than vertically. You know, Pat really plays that stuff, man, and just to watch him do what I hear on the records, I said, ah, that's, that's how he got those notes. He's already there. All he got to do is put the finger down. That kind of awareness of his skill level. Tremendous, tremendous skill, and a wonderful, wonderful man. I love playing with him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so now you get this a lot, I'm supposing. But uh, I know when I was first introduced to jazz, jazz music, um, we'll use that term. Uh, I had grown up in a family. My father listened to a lot of big band music: Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman. There were Louis Armstrong records, but it was pretty standard. So, as a nine-year-old kid, ten-year-old kid, that was my idea of what jazz was. And then I start taking drum lessons and my drum teacher's bringing me Tony Williams lifetime and he's bringing me return to forever. And I'm like, you know, the top of my head is just exploding. <laughs> like, what is this? But it was a whole new thing. So what is jazz? What is the music that you pursue? Let's talk about the definitions. If we can put a definition on it. I tell them that if you want to hear what jazz is, you come to wherever I'm playing. Yeah. That's it. What I'm playing is jazz. Right. And I don't go any further than that. That's it. You got it. It's something that needs to be experienced and absorbed, I believe, right? You got to be there to understand it. Yeah, but again, once you, once you see it take place, that's part of the music, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When you're now, when you're preparing a band for a performance or, uh, or to record with, how much in the rehearsal is dedicated to uh, exactly what you're playing and how much room do you leave for improvisation or does it vary in settings and in artists? Well, by and large, there's almost no rehearsal time for most jazz records. You get to date, you, you commit to do the record, you write the music, you go in and the guys read it at sight. Seldom do you have the rehearsal time schedule because everyone in New York is always busy. Mm-hmm. It's tough to get a band together to have a five-hour rehearsal because they all got other jobs. They got the Broadway show, they got night gigs, they got stuff to do. So rehearsal time to look for that to be a part of the record date is kind of a, a, a dream. Yeah. And so I prepared, I, I prepared the library of the date to, I write all the parts out, I have a tempo in my head, I make a chart as to how long I want the course to do in the last. I go prepared as if we've already rehearsed in my head. Yeah. And what I present to them is the results of me rehearsing in my head for these tunes. And I hope I hire the people who will trust my judgment and will not always question my choice of tempo or my changes or do I really mean that octave you know mm-hmm. I'm looking for them to affirm what I wrote not to question my judgment right and I try to hire people who are as sensitive to what my needs are as I am when I'm on their date you know yeah and it, it, it works out once you've got the kind of combination of ingredients with the decades that you've put in as a professional musician you can teach us all about um, the business as well. And so I'm going to start with a couple questions on that. Uh, how do musicians qualify criticism that they receive and how do they kind of sift through it? Well, I, I can't answer those guys, man. I know I've, I've been kind of incensed at some of the comments about me because I thought that they were off, off base, so to speak. Uh, I thought the person didn't understand what he was critiquing. I think that he didn't understand what it took to, to, took to make that project work or whatever he's complaining about that wasn't okay with him. And I've been upset as I, I guess most of my musician friends are who someone who, who, who 
puts down their effort on not understanding what it took to make it work or mm-hmm. caring, and they, they feel their job is to rag it. Well, they do that without, without any cheers from the band, you know. Uh, we understand that someone's going to do that. Getting back to our early conversation about musicians who actually don't get a chance to play for a living, some of those guys can turn on to be jazz writers because they understand what it takes to make a project work. Right. I'd like to see those guys do that rather than just give up the art of playing music and being involved in the music industry. Uh, one of the things I'm looking for is the more kids to be writers on the, on the music who, who lived it, who've been involved in the scene, who are not just doing it as a uh, journal, journal, journalism project, you know? Yeah. Well, that brings up a good point. So owner of authorship is a situation that all musicians face. And there's a line, Ron, between contributing to a piece as a player and where does it where does it cross over to where you become a co-writer? That's often a point of contention. Well, it depends on a lot of things. Uh, Mike, it depends on the, the, the music, uh, how big the group involved in claiming ownership for the record is. Uh, what is your input to that particular track? What did you do? What was your input to the melody or the changes or the forming? What did you have to do with the other than play it? Is that enough to have you co-owner of a song? It's, all those factors are always up for grabs when you talk about ownership and publication and mm-hmm. writer's rights for a composition. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's, it's a lot of conversations going on in a lot of studios yeah. about that. As a music Absolutely. educator, you know, one of the concerns I'm sure that you can talk about is um, music and the arts in general for many have become kind of a disposable commodity and uh, listening to music for the young you know I see with my 18 year old daughter and her and her friends for the most part it's become a passive activity will we see a change in that or how do we go about doing that well they gotta start listening to it in the third and fourth grade man yeah nine and ten years old you can't wait till you get to be teenagers because then they've already got them they've already heard what they want to hear yeah but they're limited choice of music available to them they like and i'm okay you know i think the fact is that we we, tend, we don't start them hearing music until they hear it on their own by and large and i think that one of the one of the terrible things about the american educational system is that they've taken music out of the, mm. out, of the, out, of the out of the junior high schools out of the elementary schools and they have those kids don't see music until they are hanging out with their clubs and their friends when they're already 18 to 24, uh, uh, 20, I'm thinking about the year 2020. So they're already yeah. in the 16, 17 year old. They've already got that decision made. And I'm okay with those decisions because they're deciding what they hear. I think they had a chance to get involved in music listening when they were 12 and 13 years old and having instruments available to them to play. They would change their concept of what music is and certainly what jazz is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In music education, it's one of those things, and it's it's such a tragedy in our in our school system that it's uh, it's not getting the um, help that it needs. And and like you no, said, I'm it, so sorry. It's like anything else. If you're not introducing it to a kid in their formation years, they're gonna it's gonna be something that they don't regard as important. And it's uh, it's it's something. But people like you are out there, and your legacy continues. I want to go to some uh, people who have sent in emails for the program when they heard that you were going to be on rick from skokie illinois says uh thank ron for uh 
All he's done, he has made some of the greatest records of all time. Live at the Plug Nickel is the greatest jazz record ever made. Oh, wow. So, so there you go. All right. And Bob in Thank Naperville, uh, Bob, in, Bob in Naperville, Illinois, asks, Does, did Ron see his role as co-leader of the quintet like being a father figure in the rhythm section to Tony and Herbie? Uh, I was a bass player in the band, and that means I, I was everything in the band. Right, right. <laughs> there you the go. Time, I, was keeping, I was keeping the form. I was keeping the harmony. I was keeping the demeanor. I was kind of everything in the band, and I loved that responsibility. Yeah. You are the, you you know, in addition to being such a great musician, you are the ambassador for the bass, the international well, ambassador you. for the bass. And I want to thank, thank you. you so much, man. I can't, I can't tell you, Ron, how excited I was to uh, have the chance to speak with you and I, I hope I did a good My interview pleasure. for you. Yes, it was. And, and, and Mike, uh, next time get your stuff fixed quicker because my coffee got cold waiting for you to come back. <laughs> <laughs> Ron, that was a great interview. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks, Mike. Love you and be careful, man. The Mike Tamano Happening. 